Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Some of you know that God can be good even when our circumstances are not. Amen. We've been in a, a series called Dear Church, and uh, we've been looking at Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3, and it was there that Jesus appeared in a vision to his apostle John. And John the apostle had been persecuted. He had actually been boiled in oil. He did not die, and uh, he was one of the only disciples that did not die a martyr's death. And as a result of not dying, they then exiled him to an island, an island called Patmos. And it was there while he, was, uh, while he had been uh, on that isle of Patmos that he had a vision. And we see the, a little bit of what was told to him at the beginning of that vision. But that's what the entire book of Revelation is. It's a vision that Jesus Christ had come, had spoken to John, said, I want you to write these things down. But before he gets into anything when it concerns what's coming in the end, he begins to address the status of, of some of his church. And there were seven churches throughout the region of Asia, and, uh, and it was in that way that he was writing to those churches, and, uh, and they represented the church as a whole. And there are different facets about those churches that we're going to talk about in just a minute. But this is what it says, Revelation chapter 1, 10 and 11, says this, that on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as I said, these churches are representatives of the church at large. And Jesus was and still is very concerned about his church. I mean, you know, Jesus is concerned about his church. In fact, this morning at the end of our time of worship, we had uh, the gift of tongues followed by the gift of interpretation, a prophetic word that was calling us as his church back to repentance. Very similar to what we talked about last week when the church of Ephesus, which was an enduring church, which was a, a, a church that was a, a, a church that was hardworking. They were a church that discerned. They were a discerning church, and they were an enduring church. By all accounts, you would look at them and you would say, "Now that is a healthy church." And yet Jesus said, "But I have this one thing against you: you have forsaken your first love." It was a call back to repentance. That activity is not a replacement for a first love relationship with Jesus. That religion cannot replace relationship. That you can't just simply go through the motions and go through all of the outward things and, and, and forget about the first love relationship that needs to happen. And so Jesus was calling his church back into a loving relationship with him. And if they had not done that, then he says your lampstand, and we talked about the lampstand last week as a place of influence. The church has a place of influence. If you do not, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to extinguish your light and the influence you have in the community around you. That's how serious it was. In Revelation 2.8, Jesus moves to the next church, the church of Smyrna. It was a town that was about 35 miles north of Ephesus. 
And I think of the letters of these churches coming to these churches in Asia. Jesus was writing to them in kind of a geographical circle. In other words, there were probably messengers that were sent out with these letters to deliver them to the churches. And so what, in the way in which these letters are written is kind of in a circle, almost as if the postman is going and making his round. So he's in the neighborhood and he goes to Ephesus and then he goes up 35 miles to Smyrna. And then next week we're going to talk about Pergamum. And he's making his way around in his delivery of these letters. In biblical days, again, Smyrna was a rival city of Ephesus. Both of the cities claimed to be first. They claimed to be the first city of Asia. And about 200,000 people, Smyrna was a little bit smaller in their population than Ephesus. However, it was a city that had literally died uh, for four centuries. Literally between 600 B.C. and 200 B.C., this city had died out. And at that point, how many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? A little history lesson here. Alexander the Great planned to bring this city back to life. So after the death of this city, it was rebuilt, and it was one of the few cities in the ancient world that had actually been planned. It had been planned, and that's going to be important because some of the words that Jesus speaks to this church and the way that he addresses his church, it's really important to understand some of their history and some of their background. This is a town that was known for having an extreme loyalty to Rome. Before Rome had established its position as a world power, Smyrna had sided against its enemies and had sided with Rome. In 195 BC, long before anyone else in the ancient world was paying tribute to Rome, this city literally built a temple in honor of a Roman goddess, Roma. And in 26 AD, just a few years before the Christian message came to Smyrna, it had won the bidding against 10 other cities in Asia to build a, 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 a temple in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. It was also known just for this, this loyalty to Rome, and that's really important for understanding what this church is going to be enduring as Jesus speaks to them. The church of Smyrna probably started as a result of Paul's work in Ephesus, and, 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 and to this, Jesus speaks a word of encouragement. So let's take a look, Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at the second church that is written to here, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Another way of saying that is the alpha and the omega. He's already said that in Revelation chapter 1. Now to this church, this is the way he addresses the first and the last who died and came to life again. I mean, you know, I'd love to stop right there. <laughs> right? I'd love to stop right there. It says here, I know, here's what he knows about them. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the short letter. This is, this is what he writes to this church. In this short few verses, Jesus does not have a word like he had to Ephesus. He doesn't have a word of correction. 
In fact, he sees them, as we talked about last week, Jesus walks among the lampstands, and he sees what's going on among his churches, and he says, I see some things in you. I know some of the struggles that you're facing. I know the persecution. I know the tough times that you are facing. But he doesn't come, and he doesn't say, I have this against you. There is no word of correction that is given, only a word of encouragement. So what's the condition of this church. What's the, what do we see here in terms of the condition? Smyrna was facing suffering. They were facing trials. They were facing persecution as a result of following Jesus. Last week, we looked at the letter of Ephesus, and it was a call to return to love, love being the distinctive and the primary mark of the church, but the love for God, love for one another, but they're not the only distinctive marks of the church. I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but there's a second distinctive mark for the church and for believers, and that mark is is suffering. Suffering. You go, whoa, I don't know if I like that one. (laughs) I don't like suffering. Yet, that's what we find. In fact, if you take a look throughout history, you will find that much of, of the church, whether it was the Old Testament prophets who suffered and were persecuted, whether it was Jesus himself or believers in the early church, there was a point in time in which suffering was a distinctive mark of a believer. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, historically, Domitian was the Caesar at this time. And if you know anything about Roman history, you know that Domitian was a murderous dictator and he launched an extensive persecution against the church which reached a fever pitch right here in the town of Smyrna. Again, the city of Smyrna, although it was very beautiful, it was a wealthy port city, it comprised of all kinds of people, Greek and Jewish and and Roman merchants. Status had been established, uh, established through a membership of various merchant trade guilds and network organizations. Smyrna was a, a city of who do you know? Recently, we, we transitioned over here as a church, we transitioned healthcare providers. How many of you know that's a lot of fun, Right? But in order to get the, uh, a, a better deal on our health care, we had to join the cozy chamber of commerce. Uh, a chamber of commerce and where businesses come together so that they can negotiate and get better deals on health care and other things like that. And so we joined Cozy in order to be a part of uh, getting a better deal on our health care. A different trade network here, that's what it's like in the city of Smyrna. It was kind of a, you you were either a part of a trade guild or you weren't. If you weren't a part of the trade guild, nobody would buy from you and you wouldn't have a chance of making it economically. But the problem was that to be a part of a trade guild, you you had to worship the emperor. You had to worship Caesar. In that time, Caesars were considered gods. They were considered a god. And they, they looked at themselves as deity. And, and to that, they wanted to be worshipped along with the other gods and goddesses. And so when you said, I am not going to worship Caesar, you were, you were no longer able to be a part of one of these trade guilds. And you were persecuted and you began to suffer economically. You were ostracized because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, the believers of Smyrna were facing some difficult times. In fact, in Revelation 2.9, Jesus says, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. And what we see here is that they were going through some suffering, and Jesus says, I'm not aware, unaware. I'm not unaware of what's happening in your lives. How many know Jesus is not unaware when we're going through suffering? 
When we're facing difficulty, he's not unaware. I love that because he says, I know. Listen, you may think that I am not watching. You may think that I don't know the persecution that you're going through. You may think that I don't know the suffering that you're under. But I want you to know that I see and I know. I know. And what was the kind of suffering? Well, there are three areas of suffering, three ways in which the church was suffering. The first word here is given as tribulation. Tribulation literally means pressure, a literally crushing beneath a weight, a crushing beneath the weight. In fact, the events that were happening in the city of Smyrna and regarding these believers in this church was a force of circumstances that was trying to crush the Christianity right out of them. How many know that the enemy works today, doesn't he? There are times in which the enemy works in our lives. There are times in which the enemy will bring increasing pressure and increasing stress into our lives because his desire is tried to get us to not see that God is good and to literally crush the Christianity right out of us. He wants to, to put us in circumstances in which we begin to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He wants to get us to begin to doubt and to say, well, maybe I ought to worship other idols. Because you know what? If I worshiped other idols, then I'd be doing better economically. If I worshiped other idols, I wouldn't be experiencing this persecution. If I compromise just a little bit, then I wouldn't be going through this. And the enemy tries to work to get us to see our circumstances in a way in which we say, you know what? I don't know if it's worth it to follow Jesus. Tribulation, literally trying to crush this weightiness that these, these believers were going out of. And the root cause of persecution was from a city and a culture that was aggressively against Christianity. Secondly was poverty. And again, in the Greek language, there are two words that can be used for poverty. One is a word that is used to describe someone like a, a college student who, who is poor. How many remember being a poor college student? Some of you say, I'm still a poor college student. I'm still paying back those student loans. The, you know, you, you really don't, you, it's not that you're destitute, you, you, you got a meal card, but you don't really like to use it, you know, if you're, you know, but you, you, but, you know, you just, you really don't have a lot. But that's not the word that is used here. Now, that's a word for poor, but that's not, a, that's not a word that is used here in terms of lower normal income. In fact, the Greek word here is perhaps better uh, translated destitute. It's a person who is literally without. In other words, they were without. Then unless someone comes to your aid rather quickly, you're going to perish. That, that's the kind of thing that we have here. It, it's not a poverty based on, on a, 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 min, a prevailing minimum wage scale, but it's a poverty based on absolute destitution. In other words, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, literally, they had nothing. Nothing. They were poor. And again, because they couldn't be a part of the the guild network to follow Jesus Christ was occupational suicide. So when these folks put their faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you something. It was more than just a, let's come up to the altar. I'm going to say a little prayer, you know, dear Jesus. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Please, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun. But sometimes here in America, because we don't experience persecution, because we have such freedom, and I thank the Lord for our freedoms that we have right now, but because of the lack of persecution, sometimes when we make these prayers of commitment to the Lord and we invite Jesus into our life, they don't hold the same meaning as what we see here in the church of Smyrna or what we see here among believers that are around the world. 
fact, I was looking up stats about the persecuted church this week, and, and I began to, to take a look. And do you know that the underground church in China, literally, when you, when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if your family or friends find out about it, that can bring you to a place of prison or death, definitely disownment. It's the same thing in many Islamic cultures around the world. But when these believers come and they are baptized as Christians, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, literally what they are saying is, I follow Jesus, I lose everything. I lose family, I lose reputation, I, I lose my, my place in the community, I suffer because nobody wants to associate with me. Much like this today, there are believers around the world that experience the same type of poverty as a result of following Jesus Christ. Not only were they facing this unbearable weight of persecution and suffering and trials. Not only were they destitute and poor, which was part of the weight, but they also were facing slander. And what I mean by slander is there were people that were literally lying about them. There were people that were making things up that didn't understand the Christian faith and as a result of that began to take a look at some of the practices that were around and they said, oh, if that's what Christianity, this is what Christianity is all about. Christianity, man, they, they're, they're, they're atheists. And you say, how can they be atheists? Because they were monotheists. They, they worshiped Jesus Christ and him alone in a culture that worshiped many gods. And as a result of that, many perceived them to be atheists because of their monotheistic worship. They were also considered to be deformed because they believed in circumcision. I'll just leave that one there. Because of their practice of wanting to follow the Sabbath, they were considered lazy. They were considered finicky due to some eating habits that they had in which they wouldn't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols or meat that had blood in it. These folks said, I don't understand. Our culture doesn't do that. I don't understand these strange ways of these. These Christians are strange. These people are weird. And as a result of that, it brought upon them a lot of blasphemy and slander because people could not accept Jesus as Messiah. In fact, not only these, but it says here that the Jews also would slander them because, again, they didn't want to hold that Jesus was the Messiah, so they opposed these believers. And the result was imprisonment, persecution, and death. They were facing some incredible suffering as a result of their faith. And they were going through this incredible trial. And yet, unlike most of the other letters, Jesus does not give them any word of correction. In fact, he comes with a word of encouragement. You know, I think sometimes there's a dangerous message that gets preached to the church and gets preached to believers. And, and what is that dangerous message? That if you are going through some type of trial or tribulation and you pray and God isn't delivering you out of it, that there's something wrong with your faith. There's a dangerous message that says that if you're experiencing something, even when it regarding healing, if you're going through something, if you're poor or you can't seem to make it or economically you're struggling, there is a message that is out there that says, well, maybe you don't have enough faith. Maybe you're not really trusting God. Maybe there's something in your life that is not right, and that's why you can't seem to experience the blessings of the Lord. And there are those that preach this. And, and what I want to show, show here is that in this situation, this church that is suffering, this church that is going through persecution and going through difficulty, there is not a word of correction that is given to this church. 
There's a word of correction that's given later on to a church in Laodicea that thought that they were rich. And they said, you think you're rich, but I tell you, you are poor. (laughs) You think you're rich, but I'm telling you, you are poor. And yet here, the opposite. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. How many of you know God's economy is completely different than ours? In fact, we look at the church of Laodicea, and it was quite the opposite. Again, oh, I'm materially rich. And he said, you're materially rich, but you're poor. And then he looks at this church that had absolutely nothing, destitute and poor, and he says, oh, yet you, you are rich. You are rich. I'm going to tell you something, friends. My fear is, for our culture today, that we have our priorities in the wrong places. That many times for our faith, we don't experience persecution. We don't experience the kind of difficulty. And because of that, we think we're wealthy. We think we're okay. We think we're healthy. We think we're right. We think everything is good in our relationship with God. And we're more like Laodicea or Ephesus in which he says, you've left your first love. Or he says, you know what? You're you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm getting ahead on the letters here. But we have believers around the world that have less than we do, and yet they have more joy than we do. Why would we live in a nation that has so much, are so many people depressed and reliant on medication, reliant on other things? I'm not downing that. But we live in the most materially rich society in the world, and yet we have a higher suicide rate than many who are in in, in third world countries. Why is that? Why do we have so much of this depression when we have so much? Why do we have so much? Because we don't understand just how rich we are. There is so much, and I know there's a lot more. Don't just, don't, you know... Pastor, you're just, you, know, you just don't get, you're just putting the whole thing. And I realize there's a lot more. But I'm telling you, increasingly the statistics are real. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Because we are mixed up. And we don't understand that God has a different kind of economy. When God looks at this church that seems as if they have absolutely nothing, or in the midst of great suffering, he says to them, yet you are rich. Yet you're rich. You might be materially poor, but you're spiritually rich. Dr. Robert Roden, he was a a longtime superintendent of of the Potomac uh, District or Potomac Network in the Assemblies of God. When I was at Valley Forge, uh, he he was on the board of the University of Valley Forge, or it was Valley Forge uh, Christian College when I was there, VFCC. I still can't get used to the university thing. Uh, But he would come in for chapels and he would speak. And, uh, and, and Dr. Roden one time uh, said this, and it's just really good. He said, the world measures success by how much you make and how many people serve you. But God measures success by how much you give and how many people you serve. Boy, that's good. I think sometimes we have it backwards. Sometimes our goals and pursuits are in the wrong places. The reality is sometimes God will lead us into seasons of pain and tribulation and persecution. And Jesus warns this church, I know you're already persecuted, but more is coming. He says, he says this, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Anybody love to get a message from the Lord like that? 
Sometimes we don't get a message, we don't hear it, but sometimes you know what I'm talking about. There is something internally, something inside of you, and you just know in your knower that, you know what, something's about to happen, and I don't think I'm going to like it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? How have you ever felt like that before? I know that there have been times in my life where there have just been an impression. There's just been something where I just feel like the Lord is saying, brace yourself and get ready because you're about to suffer. And he's telling this church, don't be afraid for what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison and test you, and you will suffer for 10 days, a season, 10 days. Suffering was a season. It was a season. And he was going to lead these believers into this season of suffering and, you know, a place of suffering where he's not going to deliver them and he's not going to take them out of it. Why would he do that? How, how does a loving God lead us into a season of suffering? I mean, we might want to ask Job that. We might want to ask Joseph in the Old Testament that. We want to, might want to ask David how he goes from being a giant slayer and going and leading the armies of, 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 of King Saul to being persecuted and chased and hiding out in caves. We might want to ask Daniel how Daniel can be at literally the top and all of a sudden receive persecution from those around him because of his prayer life, because that's the only thing they could find. So they had to come up with a law against his own faith and what he did in terms of praying. You didn't pray to the you didn't pray to Nebuchadnezzar or, or Dar- you didn't pray to Darius. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. The, you didn't pray to the king. So here's what's going to happen. If you pray to anybody else, you get thrown in the lion's den. How do we go from that? How do you go from guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were literally leaders politically in a, in a, very, uh, a, a very Gentile place? Here they were, outsiders, and yet they had risen to a place of leadership. And in the same place of leadership, God leads them into a, a, a place of suffering in a fiery furnace. God, why do you do that? Anybody ever been led into a place of season of suffering? And that's what this church, he says, listen, some of you are about to be thrown into prison to test you. Now, suffering serves four purposes. The first one can be disciplinary. Now, that's not here in this passage, but in other passages of the Bible, if you're going through suffering and you're saying, why am I going through this? There is a time where there is, there, it's a disciplinary purpose. The Corinthians were warned about taking the Lord's Supper in vain, that many of them would become weak and sick or were weak and sick because of the way they were handling the the very seriousness of the Lord's Supper. Hebrews tells us that every child loves his father's discipline, doesn't like it, but loves the corrective measure of it. And there are some times when there is suffering that is designed to be corrective in nature, disciplinary in nature, that God will allow us to to reap the fruit of the seed that we have sown so that when we experience that pain, we come back and run back to the Lord. Oh, Lord, like like the the prodigal son who, who was there eating the paws the pigs had. Why am I doing this? I need to go back to my father's house. How many of you know God will do that sometimes? Maybe that's a place where you're at. You're in a season of suffering, but if you really evaluate, it's because you're not doing what the Lord is asking you to do. And as a result of that, you've been experiencing his discipline and correction. Listen, he loves you. He's not doing this to harm you. He's doing this because he cares more about your holiness than he does about your happiness. Secondly, some suffering is preventative. Paul said this, that it was given a thorn in his flesh in order to keep him from being uh, overly elevated or, or to keep him humble. 
He prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh, the suffering would be removed, and God didn't do that. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. For Paul, there was this thorn in his flesh that was there to prevent him from stepping over an area in his life where he would step over into sin, usually in a place of pride. God had a very powerful ministry in Paul, and Paul recognized that the suffering he was going through was to keep him humble and reliant upon the Lord. Thirdly, how many know suffering can be educational? Hebrews 5.8 says that the Lord Jesus Christ himself learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. Trials and tribulations can help us grow our faith. Jesus' brother, James, when he wrote, said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God will use the trials and the tribulations in our lives if we will allow him to, to grow us closer to him, to grow us in our faith. Sometimes the trials that we go through become educational in our lives. But finally, and this is where we see this church, suffering is sometimes just simply associated with witness. These believers were experiencing this suffering because they proclaim their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they refuse to worship other idols, because they refuse to, to worship Caesar, because they said, Caesar is not Lord. We will not say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is the only Lord. Jesus is Lord, and we will not back down. Therefore, they experience persecution and trouble. It's important to note that that again, God did not cause this suffering. The suffering they were experiencing was at the hands of ungodly people, but God allowed the suffering. There are times when God allows it. God does not cause the suffering, but he will allow the suffering. He will allow us to experience that. And so the slander came from Satan, and the trials came from the evil people in their lives, and the men who were not acting on God's behalf. But this testing would serve as a purpose. It was to test these believers and there's a difference between temptation and testing temptation is designed to make you fall but testing is designed to prove your strength they were they were not god wasn't trying to trip them up although they were being crushed under this tribulation that was designed to try to squeeze the christianity out of them god said no 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 what it's going to do is it's going to prove your strength it's going to test and prove your strength there will be no dross. In fact, you will gleam. Author David Ravenhill in his book, The Jesus Letters, he shares a story of Jesus' conversation with Peter in Luke chapter 22, but he does it in kind of his own words. And I, I love the way he does that because it's kind of a, a fun look about how the conversation may have gone between Jesus and Peter. And you'll pick up on the story uh, of what's happening, but but it, he, he kind of writes this. He says, one morning, Peter comes out for breakfast at daybreak, and he, he says, uh, hey, Lord, um, did, you, uh, I was, did, you, did you hear anything? Did you hear a knocking this morning on the door? And uh, Jesus says, uh, well, yeah, you know, I was up before daybreak, and I was praying, and, uh, and I did hear a knocking. And Peter asks, well, Lord, who was knocking? And Jesus says, well, this may surprise you, but it was the devil. It was Satan. And Peter says, Satan, the devil, what do you mean? Come on, Lord, don't joke with me like that. And Jesus said, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Lord, Peter asked in astonishment, well, what did he want? Well, actually, he came to talk with me about you, Peter, Jesus said. 
Oh, I get it, Peter smiles. This is a joke. You're, just, you're playing around with me, aren't you? And Jesus says, no, it's no joke. He came to ask my permission to sift your soul the way wheat is sifted. Peter kind of startled at thinking of the violent threshing motion used to separate the good kernels of wheat uh, from the useless stem. And he responds, well, uh, Lord, if that's the case, am I ever glad that you answered the door? Uh, wh- what did you, what'd you tell him? What would you say? And Jesus said, I, I said, go ahead. You have my permission. You what? <laughs> you gave him permission? <laughs> what are you talking about? And Jesus said, I gave him permission. And I did it because I know that ultimately it won't destroy your faith. I know that in the outcome it will make you a seasoned man of God. For only when the useless chaff is taken out of your life will you be able to help others. Oh, and by the way, Peter, I know that you'll not be destroyed and that your faith won't fail because I myself will be praying for you the whole time you're being sifted. That, that is a hard picture to see. We, we, like, we like the Jesus who heals. We, we like the Jesus who, who when, when you are down and, and you've been been thrown down and you've messed up, that he's the Jesus that extends the hand of mercy and the hand of grace and lifts you back up again. We, we like the Jesus that raises the dead, that opens the blind eyes, that opens the deaf ears. We like the Jesus that is there for the down and out and the, and the poor in spirit. We like the Jesus that is there, but we don't like the times when Jesus says, you know what, hey, it's time to test your faith. It's time for a sifting. It's time... It's time for you to go through a season of suffering. We, we, we go, what? I don't see how that can be good for me. I don't, I don't see why you would let me, why you would let that happen. I, I don't understand why you would put me in that particular season. And yet throughout Scripture, that's what we see. And it's here in the church of Smyrna that Jesus says, listen, listen, listen. You're, I, you're, you're about to suffer all right, for a season, for 10 days, you're going to be put into prison and you're going to be persecuted. But don't be afraid. How can Jesus say, don't be afraid? Well, I don't understand. Don't be afraid. I should be afraid. You're telling me I'm going to suffer. I don't like suffering. You're telling me I'm going to be sifted. You're telling me I'm going to be tested. I don't like being tested. I, I, I don't understand. Why would you do that? Why, how can you say, don't be afraid? Well, let me go back to the way that Jesus opened this letter. Because the way Jesus opened this letter is really, really critical to understanding his encouragement to these believers. Because until you understand who Jesus Christ is, until you understand the way that he shares and addresses himself, you can't understand why he could possibly say, you're going to go through this, but don't be afraid. And so let's go back for a moment because here's how Jesus opens this letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. These are powerful claims, aren't they? In in each of these letters in a different way, Jesus introduces himself and gives us a different picture. And we put together the picture, we get a composite of who he is. In the letter of the church in Ephesus, remember, he said, I'm the one who walks among the seven lampstands. To the church in Philadelphia that we're going to see in a few weeks, he says, he's the one who holds the key of David. 
to the church in Laodicea, he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. And here he calls himself the first and the last who was dead and comes to life again. Isn't that powerful? And he says, do not be afraid. For I'm the, in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the foundation. This is the foundation. Jesus Christ declares himself. He says, listen, I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. To put it in context, we need to understand what this description of God means. In the Old Testament, Jesus said this in Isaiah 41, 4. He who, he, who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time. It is I, the Lord, the first and the last. I alone am he. That's one of several references they go all the way back to the, ep- to, the, to the exodus at a moment where God reveals his identity to a, to a, 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 a murderer uh, by the name of Moses who had been wandering around for 40 years up on a hill. And God got a hold of him at a burning bush. And God begins to speak and he tells him, listen, I'm about to fulfill the promise that I had. And, and there have been, been 400 years that my people have been suffering. 400 years that they have been suffering, and then I'm about to send you to be a deliverer. And, and Moses says, well, who do I tell him has sent me? What is your name? And he says this, I am, I am that I am. I am. Tell him I am has sent you. I am has sent you. I am. I am what? <laughs> what is that? What do you mean? He leaves it unresolved. I am. I am What? Kind of an unfinished painting, an unfinished sentence. Just tell him I am. I am. What is I am? And then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus begins to to give definition to I am. And in the book of John, he begins to state, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And now he says this, I am the first And the last, the one who is dead but is raised to life again, I am. I am. Alpha was the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega was the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And what does he say? I am A to Z. I am the alphabet. And we, we, we sometimes take the alphabet for granted, don't we? Sometimes we take the alphabet for granted. I mean, take for example, just the Library of Congress alone. There are 35 million books in the Library of Congress, and guess what? Every single one of them only uses 26 letters, and yet they're vastly different. They're as different as Dr. Seuss to Dr. Phil, right? Come on, without the alphabet, none of those books would exist. And with the alphabet, there is endless possibilities. Everything from the Magna Carta to the Constitution to even the Bible. And I think what God is saying is, listen, I'm the, I'm the alphabet. I, he's establishing his, his, his authority right down to every jot and tittle, every letter of the alphabet. And additionally, he says, I'm the one who died and came back to life again. In other words, even death is under my authority and my power. There is nothing that can happen to you that is not within my control, my authority, my power. You're being sifted, but you need to understand that in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the testing, in 
in the midst of the sifting, I am. I am the beginning and I am the last. I have the beginning word and I have the last word. And there is nothing anybody can do without me, without my intervention. So you look to me. When you are suffering, you look to me. When you are going through a time of testing, you look to me. You rely on me. You trust me that I am faithful and that I can bring you through. That I am faithful. And you know what? There are many martyrs who did not make it. Many who went through a series of testing and they were persecuted and they were literally killed for their faith. Why? What in the world? I don't understand. How can that be? He didn't even bring them through. Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did, because he said, although there might be the first death, you will not taste the second death. You know what that is? That's a hope for eternal life, that although physically in this life we might be considered dead, spiritually when we know Jesus Christ, we are not, because he holds the keys to death, and he holds the keys to Hades. And you will not taste it. So you know what? There is nothing they can do to you here on this earth. There is nothing anybody can do to you. Bring the persecution on because there is nothing that they can do that is outside of what God says. I've got the final authority. They may try to shut your mouth. They may try to shut you up. They may try to shut you down. They may try to imprison you. They may try to persecute you. They may even kill you. But guess what? My witness will go out even stronger. You will not taste of the second death. In these other countries where there is great persecution, the church is facing revival and growing. And here the church is stagnant. I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not one of these masochists, all right? I'm not saying, oh, yeah, you know, ooh, I want to suffer. But I'm going to tell you something. There is persecution that's coming. Open your eyes. Look around you. The, 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 the values that are in the Word of God, the things that we, that we hold to as the Word of God are no longer held to in our culture. In fact, they're persecuted, and they are considered at many times to be hate, to be intolerant. So as a believer, if you are going to stand... For God's word, understand that persecution in a time of testing is coming. But I have an encouragement for you, and that is the same encouragement in Revelation 2, 11 and 12, where Jesus encourages uh, an encouragement of an eternal reward. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I will give you life. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, is the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And again, similar to the Olympic Games, this was not a crown of royalty, but a crown of victory. In persecution, in tribulation, in poverty, you and I, we might feel powerless and we might feel defeated. But Jesus reminds us that if we will hang on and be faithful, he reminds us that he is our victory. That he has the last word. That he is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He was the one who died but rose again. And because of that, we too can experience resurrection life. We too have hope in the midst of our suffering. I want to ask the worship team to come and I'm going to close. I'm going to close with just one last story. In the middle of the second century, there was a church leader by the name of Polycarp. Anybody ever heard of Polycarp before? You may not know this, but Polycarp was actually a bishop of Smyrna. He was the bishop. He was one of the church leaders at Smyrna. 
He was also someone that knew the Apostle John personally, and many folks believe that he was discipled. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, that, that uh, the Apostle John had mentored him, the very one that wrote out these vision that he saw, these letters to these churches. And so here he was. He was a leader in this church, and uh, the church uh, uh, of Smyrna Polycarp died a martyr's death. By refusing to offer a sacrifice to Caesar or acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Now, why is that important? Because according to the account of his death, when he was told to forsake Christ, he responded by saying this. Eighty and six years I have served him. So he's 86 years old. Eighty and six years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior now? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And then he prayed this. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. The cup of Christ. What was the cup of Christ? Jesus said when he was praying in the garden, let this cup pass from me. Yet nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. What was it? It was the cup of suffering. The cup of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And he considered it an honor. It was not something that was looked at as a negative, but rather he saw himself as being chosen by God and honored by God to suffer for his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I wonder if the moments leading up to his death, what was sustaining him if it wasn't the, the courage and the peace the, that, that Jesus Christ in this letter that he had written to his church, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I wonder if the, the, the words of this letter did not encourage Polycarp to say, I need to take a stand for my faith. So my question to you today is, are you experiencing tribulation? Are you going through suffering? Are you going through difficulty? Have you been a faithful witness and you are in a season of persecution? So I'm not sure exactly what you're going through, but I want to encourage you. Do not fear, remain faithful. For Jesus is the first and the last. And he is the one that overcame death and came back to life again. He holds the keys to life. The Lord may be sifting you. He may be working on you. But remain faithful to the God who is eternal. To the God who has the last word. Let's bow our heads this morning. Jesus. Father, we just thank you today. We thank you today, Lord, that we can come and be encouraged by your word. Father, right now, I'm not sure who is going through suffering right now, who is in a sifting process, who is going through a difficult time, who might be persecuted today because of a stand for their faith. But Lord, we know that you are faithful, and we know that you are able, that you are the first and the last. And Father, I pray your encouragement today. I pray your encouragement today. I pray that as they hang on, Lord, they would hang on to you. They would hang on to you. That we would look to you and we would hang on to you knowing, Lord, that you are good. Knowing, Lord, that you are great. Knowing, God, that you are merciful. Oh, Lord, we just hang on to you. We hang on to you. We hang on to you. 
We hang on to you, Lord. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus. If you're going through a difficult time and you want prayer this morning, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you just to, to come for prayer today and be encouraged. We let, let someone pray with you and encourage you today. No matter what it is, whatever you're going through today, I want you to know that the Lord is able and he has the last word. He is able, he is able, he is faithful, and he can bring you through. And so as we begin and prepare to just sing and worship the Lord as we close today, I want to invite you to come as we do so. Come on, can we stand today? And if that's you today, you need prayer for any reason. Maybe you want to commit your life to Christ today. You want to give your life to Jesus. You want to take a stand and give your life to Christ. Will you come today? Will you come today and let us pray for you? Will you come today and submit your heart to the Lord today? If that's you, will you come? Come on. Let's just come today. Let's come today and let's just honor the Lord. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.